0: So, today, I'm just recording it here for the podcast later, today we're going to look at doctrines of creation, Uh, we've finished, in a sense, we've finished uh, the doctrine of God, we talked about the attributes of God, and then we talked about the Trinity, how to talk about the Trinity, how not to talk about the Trinity, now we're talking about creation, how did God create the world, so the way I want to open this is actually just to read all of Genesis chapter 1, because that's really the event that we are studying in in this morning, in the doctrine of creation. So I have the whole text in our notes here. The notes, if it's in bold, it's from the Bible, and if it's not in bold, those are my words of explanation. So let me just read Genesis chapter one until chapter two, verse four. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work, That he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So I know that was long, but I thought that that would be worthwhile because we're going to talk so much about. This event, I just thought it'd be worth reading the whole thing there. There's a whole bunch more verses that I have provided below that I'm not going to read, but if you want uh, some verses to look at that further talk about how God is the creator, there's a big, long list there, Um, and a list of verses that talk about God the Son creating and lists of verses that talk about God the Holy Spirit creating. All three persons of the Trinity were actively involved in creation. Um... So if you want to look at those verses, you are welcome to. Uh, but I'm going to kind of graze over those. Um, this probably implied um, God created everything from nothing. This is, You probably would assume that from the passage. Um, but Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. If there's any thing... God made that, and that's not just the material world, that's also the physical, excuse me, the the spiritual world. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 read this, right? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The heavens and the earth, that's not just the material world, but even the heavenly world is created by God. Colossians 1.16 says something similar. um, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So that's both the spiritual unseen world and the physical seen world. God created all of it. God even created time. Time itself. Uh, Jude 25. "To, To the only God... Uh, our our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be Majesty glory dominion authority before all time now and forever Amen Second Timothy one before the ages began God gave us Christ um, God promised Christ to us the hope of eternal life who. I'm just going to read Titus 1-2, I've I've already botched it. Titus 1-2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Before time began, God intended to save us. Before time began. Time had a beginning. I know that's mind-blowing. But time is part of God's creation as well. Another thing to make sure we point out is creation is good. Creation is good. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Genesis 1.10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. Same thing, verse 18, 21, 25, and 31. But 31 says this, after he creates humanity, God says this, or the passage reads this, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's how it ends. That's how the creation narrative ends. Ends, and that happens right after humanity is created. And we're going to talk more about why humanity is so um, special uh, to God in a moment. Um, but then other passages in the New Testament say the same thing. For everything that created by God is good, 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. So creation is good. Creation is good. Another thing, creation demonstrates God. Creation demonstrates God. A passage we've talked about before in this class is Romans chapter 1, but we're going to look at this in a slightly new light here. Romans 1, 19 and 20, read this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Welcome, Alex. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, that... Passage is saying we can know about God's nature just by looking at what he made. His nature, his creation communicates him. His creation communicates him. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1 reads: this is a passage that some of you have probably heard before. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, right? So God is glorious. We talked about that. That's one of his attributes. And the heavens declare it. The heavens declare that God is glorious. And in fact, God created. What's the purpose of God creating? God created, in part, and I think this is the ultimate reason, God created for his glory. God created for his glory. Colossians 1, 15, we've read this part already. Um, By him all things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. So God's creation is for Him. It's also, you know, for us. That's true. But why did God make it? He made it for Himself. Is why He created. Um, why He created everything. Uh, Isaiah 43 says, "Everyone who is called by My name, who I created for My glory." So God creates for his glory. Again, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why did God create? Because it shows his glory. It gives God glory. But having said that, does God need creation in order to be glorious? Does God need creation? I don't think so. Acts chapter 17 reads this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God didn't need to create in order to be glorious. But God created, still, for himself that he might be glorified. So that's God created for his glory. How are we doing so far? Feeling good? Okay. We're thinking. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Another point, and feel, me. Yeah, go you for it. You are saying uh, God didn't need anything. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, he didn't need to create mm-hmm. anything Right, right, for right. His glory. Mm-hmm. But then you are saying that I didn't you know why He mm-hmm. need to be glorified. You... Mm. Yeah, good good, good point, Payal. So on the one, I think you're, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, but it sounds like your question is okay. On the one hand... God created so that he'd be glorified. I understand that. But then on the other hand, it says he didn't need to be glorified. So how do you put those two together? Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, I'm a little bit confused. Yeah. He also mentioned that this is the reason why God created glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, so a couple things to say about that. This is, a great, this is a great question. So one thing that we definitely want to make sure we say is that One of God's eternal attributes, part of his nature, his eternal nature, is that he just is glorious. That's just how God is. So whether you and I exist or not, God will be glorious. Perhaps a way to say, so it's not like God's gaining any glory by creating us. It might be a better way for me to say it, Peah, might be, we, we attribute glory to god so we glorify god ourselves right the heavens declare the glory of god so they they point to the glory of god but do the heavens declare the glory of god in proportion to how glorious god is i would think not the the heavens are finite you know like so i don't know that you and i pay are able to give god glory to the extent that he deserves, necessarily. Neither do I think anything can do that. I don't think the heavens can do that. But yet, we still give God glory. We still show that he's glorious. We still say that he's glorious and acknowledge that he's glorious. So, that might be a better way to, to say it. to bring glory to God, I think, would be to, um, to attribute glory to him and to do things that bring him honor. Not that he needs any honor from us but it is right that we would honor him because he deserves it. That's it. Does that kind of help a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Cool. Body. Yeah, 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 it, it, it's, a, it, it's, a mind, it's a mind challenge for sure. But That's a great question. So moving, moving forward from here, we have ne- the next point, is that creation belongs to God. Ultimately creation belongs to God, Deuteronomy chapter 10, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God made everything in the world, and everything in the world belongs to God. Another point, we should praise and worship God because he is created. We should praise and worship God because, not that he is created, excuse me, because he created. God is not created. God is eternal. But we should praise and worship God because he did creation. Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The fact that God created is a reason for us to praise Him. Is a reason for us to worship Him. Pretty cool. Now, maybe a point of application here. Oftentimes, and this is true about myself, this is probably true about all of us, we can feel like self-conscious about the way that we're made, about the way that we are. Maybe we're insecure about the way we look or how we're made, something like that. But to maybe push on that a little bit, creation of which humanity is the pinnacle by the way we're going to talk about that. what it means to be made in the image of god but we are the pinnacle of god's creation god created in order to make us praise him and worship him but we can twist it to say oh i wish i looked a certain way or whatever but god's design is that we would be created and rejoice in that i'm fearfully and wonderfully made david says right so just maybe even to invite us into like rethinking what the purpose even of creation is and specifically for ourselves and like our insecurities what we are and how we're made is a grounds to worship God and thank him for making us the way that we are and to ask him to change our minds if we don't like the way that we're made anyway maybe that's a side point but I wanted to mention that because I think all of us struggle with not loving the way that we're made but I think that Jesus invites us into worshiping him for the way that we're made. Um, so anyway. Related, not exactly the same. We can rejoice because of creation. We see in Psalm 118, you've heard this verse before. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Why are we partying? Because God made this day. Let's go. You know, it's like, let's rejoice. God made it. You know, that's cool. There's a lot in creation. I think this is cool stuff. Okay. We submit and we obey. Bless you. you. We submit and obey because we are created. We submit and obey because we are created. This is related to the point we made earlier about how uh, creation belongs to God. Because we're created, we should obey God. Jeremiah chapter 5. God is rebuking the Israelites for being disobedient. And God says this to them. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. God is implying there, hey, I created you, therefore you should be obeying me. But you're not. I placed the sand next to the sea. That should make you obey me. So that's God's argument in chapter 5. Um. We'll, 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 there's another verse but we're going to use that in just a moment so I'll, I'll hold that verse in Isaiah 45 God is, this is the next point God is entitled to do whatever he chooses with his creation if creation belongs to God God is entitled to do whatever he chooses with it Jeremiah 27 verse 5 reads this it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and I give it to whomever seems right to me. God's entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. Isaiah 45. In my notes I didn't put the verse, so I'm sorry about that in both of the places. So somewhere in chapter 45 it says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it? What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Uh, so anyway, I won't read the whole rest of that. But the argument there is, hey, if I made you this way, why are you pushing back? I'm, I'm allowed to do what I want with my creation. This is also, in a lot of ways, the story of Job, I think. Job is Job accuses God of being unjust for allowing Job to suffer. Right? Do you guys know that story about Job? Job suffers, Job accuses God of being unjust because of it. The whole, I mean, it's, I think it's like 38 chapters of basically Job complaining and his friends giving him horrible advice. And then God shows up, lifts off his resume of creation, which is long. Job shuts up. And God didn't even give some, like, technical defense of, oh, this is my justice. This is how it mechanically works out. He's just like, I created everything. Did you do that, Job? No, you didn't. And then Job says, I'm going to be quiet. I wish I never talked. I, 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 I repent. You know, like, but God's creation is what caused Job even to say, yeah, you can do whatever you want with me. Like, you are just. I am allowed to suffer. That, no problem. So that, the the doctrine of creation, is what brings Job to a place of humility, to say, God, you're entitled to do whatever you want with me. I'm made by you. There's more we can say about that, but let's move on. God self-identifies as creator. This is a part of how God identifies even himself to us. What I mean is this, in Psalm 95, God says, "Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That's his identity, right? Like he is the maker. He is our maker. Zechariah 12, something similar. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. God's like, hey, this is what I say. The one who made everything. Like This is how God identifies himself to us. Similar verses, but let's keep, let's keep moving. We've got a lot, a lot of ground to tread here. Humanity is created in the image of God. I should have put this in the notes, but I, humanity is also the pinnacle of God's creation. I mentioned that earlier, but I didn't explicitly write it in this section. I think I should have. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. You remember what happened at the end of the sixth day that we read in Genesis 1? Humanity was created in God's image. What does it mean to be made in God's image? I think that's a relevant question. The details of that, we might not know all of the details of what it all means and be able to lay out every single bullet point what it means to be made in the image of God, but at least it means this. We represent God uniquely among God's creation. We are like God in a unique way compared to the rest of of creation nothing no other creature is said to be made in God's image only humanity is made in God's image we represent God we are like God in a peculiar way in a in the in the, we are most similar to God than than any other uh, creation a few verses about this and we, we read a couple of them Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 then God said let us make man in our image After our likeness. It goes on to say, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now being made in God's image is a big deal to God. In Genesis 9, uh, this is after the flood, God says this, Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So, in the Old Testament, capital punishment was demanded if you were to murder someone because humans are made in God's image. That was such a big deal to God that God said, look, if you ruin someone who's made in my image, you just need you need to die. This is how big of a deal it is that you're made in my image. This is such this is so important to me, is I think what God is getting at there. So You wanna... Okay, Psalm 8. I'll, I'll quote a couple of passages from Psalm 8. This is the one that's, um, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And, Basically, I think what David is getting at in Psalm 8, as he's praising God, is although we're nothing, God is uniquely concerned about us. We are the piece of creation that God is most peculiarly concerned with, because we're made in His image. And I suggested this earlier. I want to repeat it here. I think that the reason that creation is said to be very good, as opposed to just good, uh, in the creation narrative of Genesis 1, Is because humanity gets made and then humanity is very good. And I think that's because humanity is the pinnacle of God's very good creation. Turns out I did have that in my notes so I didn't need to say it before. That's perfect. Um, Okay, One, one kind of maybe technical thing to say. Some people think that only humanity, like the community of humanity, are made in the image of God. Or some people think only like, uh, uh, married couples image God. Because in the context, the first time the image of God was talked about was in the context of a marriage. I don't quite think that's true. Individual people are said to be made in the image of God. So are communities of people in the very same verse. So let's take a look at that. Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Singular him, that's Adam. He, God, created Adam. But then communities of people, too, in the marriage. Genesis 1:27, very next line, male and female, he created them. So I don't think it's quite right to say, oh, only when you're married do you really image God. That's just not, I don't think that's what the passage says. God here says that an individual is made in his image, not just a married couple. So anyway, maybe... You won't bump into that but I wanted to throw that throw that out there because some people do do say it. Um, there are also people who will say now that we have now that Adam has sinned, maybe you guys have heard about the fall before the fall is kind of a, a term that Christians use to describe when Adam sinned for the first time and then God cursed the world. We're, we're going to talk more about that when we talk about sin. but people will say now that we are a fallen race, a fallen people, we are no longer made in the image of God. We're close, but we're not anymore. I don't think that's right. James chapter three, verse nine says this. Now James is writing to a post fallen humanity, right? With our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, who are present tense in God's likeness, that's God's image. So it's not the case that like, although I have eczema, which I do and I hate it and I get really itchy, I'm still made in the image of God. I'm a fallen person, yes, but I am made in God's image nonetheless. Now, we image God worse because of the fall. That's true. James 3 2. We all stumble in many ways. I don't see too many people denying that. Nobody's perfect. Amen. But we're still created in God's image. That has still been preserved. That's what I want to point out. Okay. A side note, but that's related. I just really wanted to sneak this in here. It's about the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was made for man, right? Jesus says this um, in Mark chapter 2, 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man made for the Sabbath, right? Jesus is making a point in that context about how we don't have to be legalistic about keeping a Sabbath, etc. I'm bringing this up though to say, hey, what is the Sabbath for? The Sabbath is for humanity. The Sabbath is for us. It's not just for the pigs. Well, actually, the the pigs would have been unclean. That's a horrible example. It's not just for the cows, you know, or whatever animals they had. It was for humans specifically that God instituted the Sabbath. And in fact, the first full day that Adam and Eve experienced was a Sabbath day. They were created on the sixth day, right? And then the seventh day God rests. Their first day of existence is rest. That's kind of cool. Talk about, like, grace and love being shown to humanity from the very beginning. I mean, I I think that's pretty sweet. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, God's like, hey, welcome to the world. You haven't done anything. Have a rest day. Yeah, it's like, that's so gracious. That's so not how we operate in our culture. Also, though, in the Genesis narrative, notice how a day begins and ends. There was evening and there was morning, the first, second, third day, etc. But there was evening and there was morning. Some people will say, oh, well, this is not really talking about a day because we're, we're going to talk about what does a day mean? I really, I, I don't want to jump into a controversy too early. We're going to do that in like 10 minutes. But a day begins at night. A day begins with rest. God is giving people days to exist in. And every day begins with rest. Evening. It's time to sleep. That's pretty cool. Talk about a gracious God, who's not concerned about how hard we work primarily, but rather about granting us a sweet existence. That's, talk about gospel foreshadowing. So anyway, I wanted to point that out. Like, their day began with sleep and rest, and then they would go to work. We think about, now that I have earned my sleep, I can go to bed now. But the way that I think God wants to reframe our framework, and even still in Jewish culture today, even a day begins And Anyway, I think the way God wants us to think about how we get stuff done is I will rest with God, and then out of my rest with God, I will do work after I wake up. But I, in my culture, I'm sure in the culture that you share with me, I wake up and I think, all right, my day began, i got to go get work done. Oh, now that I've earned my rest, I can go to sleep. And if I haven't finished my work, I go to bed later. That's opposite of what God is intended. So anyway, that, that's a side note. But God created the Sabbath for us. We're made in His image, and He wants us. He wants to bless us and care for us. So I thought that was cool. Okay. Related, the salvation. Maybe not exactly related. Salvation itself is a new creation. Salvation is a new creation. You've heard this verse before. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we are a, If we are believers, we have been recreated. Recreated. Our salvation is a creation event. The universe was created by the word of God. Hebrews 11:3. That's how the the world was created. Uh, by the word of God, all things were created. Hebrews 11 says. Likewise, when we're born again. We're born again from the word of god second peter you've been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of god by god's word he made the entire universe and by god's word he remakes our hearts in regeneration i think that is super cool i'm gonna, yeah we're gonna we're gonna double click on this god gave br- the breath of life in the creation narrative he breathed the breath of life in genesis 2 into Adam's nostrils, that's Genesis 2.7. We actually haven't read that yet. So I'll read it now. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. John 20.22 Jesus breathed on the disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. There's a parallel there. And so a very real and authentic way, legitimate way we could summarize the gospel to someone is this. God made creation very good he made creation very good that that creation corrupted itself and so God recreated it and will on that last day fully and finally recreate it when we all get to live in New Jerusalem forever that's good news all right we are now going we've talked about the awesome stuff the glorious stuff that all Christians really ought to believe I think there's some controversy about creation as well, as some of you probably know. So, a lot of leading, like dominant scientific theories, in my opinion, bump up against the Bible claims. And so I'm, I'm going to do what I think I need to and teach what I think the Bible is really saying. But maybe a, a, a word of disclaimer. I am inclined. This is like a me. I'm not necessarily representing views of Mercy House here. I'm sure some people at Mercy House would agree with what I'm saying, but I'm just, as a person, I'm inclined to read the Bible fairly literally. Now that for me doesn't mean there's no metaphorical, like allegorical meaning to it that's symbolic, but I am inclined to take what the Bible says, understand it more or less literally, and then from there understand symbolism. So that's kind of a, a preface that might explain kind of where I'm going to go for the last third of our class. But so I just I felt like I should be straightforward about how I typically approach God's word even, so that you can know kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, I don't want to pretend that there are no, there's no other Christian views on this. There are good Christians who have disagreements with how to understand kind of the nuances of the creation narrative, but I think the best way to learn is to hear someone give arguments, so I'm gonna do that, and we can talk about it as well. Probably some of this might be controversial. So why don't we do questions about specifics of this after we'll we'll, we'll stop the recording and then we'll 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 get <laughs> 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 fired. Fire. Fire. Well, here we go. We're just gonna. So I I also I studied mechanical engineering. So I don't want to say science isn't important. But I do want to say, I think what the Bible says should have primacy in what we believe about how God created the world. So with all that said, let, let's dive into some stuff. Some people will say, and I, I'm, I'm not about to say this, but some people will say that Genesis 1-3 through is not a historical narrative. You might have heard this before. Some people also extend that to Genesis uh, through Genesis 11 so that the flood doesn't count as a real historical event either. Um, or a complete, anyway, I, I don't happen to believe that. I don't think there's any literary reason to believe that it's non-historic and then that real history picks up in Genesis 12. A few reasons why I don't believe that. Why I do think this should be understood as a historical narrative with the rest of Genesis, with the rest of the historical books. Genesis 2, Eden is located within known geography. There's four rivers in four areas. To me that suggests a literal historical event in a literal historical place. If you want to look at that, it's Genesis 2 verse 10 to 14. But also, and I think this is, the, in my mind, the most compelling reason to see conti- continuity between Genesis 1 and the rest of the historical books, is that there are genealogies placed all throughout the book of Genesis before and after chapter 11, and then throughout the whole Bible. We read one of those genealogies in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. These are the generations of Esau. This is Genesis 25, 36. It seems to me that the account of Genesis is concerned to locate all of these creations within a genealogy so that we can record how it all happened, where it was all going, where it was all pointing, and where it started. so I think there's continuity in that respect. There's, there's, I have a whole list of statements about these are the generations of. I'm not going to read all those. That was more for to show what I'm trying to say. You can look at the notes if you want to look at all of those. What is the purpose of genealogies in the Bible? Well, there's a number of purposes. The one that's relevant for us is genealogies establish continuity to guarantee God's promises through lineage. Right. So God promised... Abraham and his descendants something in Genesis 12 God promised David and his descendants something in 2nd Samuel 7 Jesus is a fulfillment of both of those Matthew 1 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ son of David son of Abraham Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic promises we know that but Genealogy, kind of a main point, main takeaway point that I'm trying to make. Genealogies exist in the Bible to demonstrate a continuous story. That, that's the argument I'm making. And there's genealogies all throughout the scriptures, including in the creation narrative. So that's, that's a reason that I, I find very compelling for believing that this is an actual, literal, historical event. So, moving forward. God created Adam directly from the dust of the earth. Genesis 2:7 Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God formed him, breathed on him and he became alive. Genesis 3:23 Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. You're going to work the ground? That's where you came from. The dust, I formed you, I breathed you, you came from the ground. I think the implication there is that he was taken directly from the ground, not that he came from a different species that developed over a long period of time. Um, The New Testament seems to say something similar. 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth, that's Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, that's Jesus, a man who is God. Last point about this, there is a parallel between where man came from and where man goes where man came from and where man goes after he dies genesis 3:19. by the sweat of your face this is god cursing adam for his sin by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return adam came from the ground i think directly and he will return to the ground well everybody knows that's direct at least um, that we return to the ground there's not a gradual process there so what I'm saying is I think Adam came directly from the ground and will go back directly into the ground. That's, that's what I, where I see a parallel there. So God created Adam directly from the dust of the earth. Now, his wife Eve was directly formed from the body of Adam. Genesis 2, we did not read this this morning, but we'll read it now. Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, that's Adam, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This, he sings a song, this is my girl, basically. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So I understand that to be actually what happened. I don't think that's just some quote-unquote poetic analysis or something like that i also think the new testament understands this passage fairly literally first corinthians 11 reads this paul says man was not made from woman but woman was made from man now as you probably know evolution doesn't read it this way i don't believe in theistic evolution theistic evolutionists can be really good Christians, and that's awesome. We have faith in Jesus together, amen. I don't think theistic evolution, personally, I, don't, I the way I'm reading the Bible, I don't see how theistic evolution is compatible with what we're seeing in scriptures about how the earth was created. We can talk more about that um, if we want to, but for now, um, let, let's keep moving. Adam was created before Eve. Adam was created before Eve, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, Is it not good that the man should be alone? Excuse me. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. So what's the implication? Adam was alone until another human came into being. He was alone, and then another human came from him. There were animals, but there were no other humans. 1 Timothy 2 says something similar. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Another point to make, all humans descend directly from Adam and Eve. All humans descend directly from Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.20 The man, that's Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of most of the living. No, that's not what I'm sorry. Because she was the mother of all the living. <laughs> is, what, is what is... I, I'm, I shouldn't... I, I'm being a little bit edgy. Yeah, okay. Um, Acts 17, though, says a similar thing about Adam rather than Eve now. Acts 17 says, He, that is God, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So Adam names Eve Eve because she's the mother of all living. And Adam, the one man, is said to be the one from whom every nation of mankind fills the earth. Adam and Eve are the literal great, great, great ancestors of all of us is what I think the Bible is saying about that. Now, when someone like me makes a point like this, Sometimes good Christians can ask a question. Well, if that's the case Where did Cain find a wife if you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Abel was a good guy. Cain was not Cain got jealous of Abel, so he murdered him Nice guy. Anyway for our purposes Cain is punished right for murdering Abel So God punishes him and in Genesis 4 records that God says you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth so God curses Cain, but then Cain objects to say, "Oh, this is going to be really bad for me." Genesis, 4, well, you murdered him, so I'm sorry. But anyway, Genesis 4:14. 4, Cain objects. I sh- I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Whoever, whoever, people will ask, "Well, who's the whoever?" I thought everybody descended from Adam and Eve. All then, why is he talking? Whoever. So weren't there therefore other people, other peoples, another people group that he would be worried about? I my response is not necessarily I don't think there were we know Genesis uh, 5 4 says the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years he had other sons and daughters so I think the solution to that objection is that there were other children of Adam and Eve who would be really upset with their older brother for killing Abel and that's why they would be willing to kill Cain since he killed Abel so anyway Um, As a note, incest was not prohibited until much later in the narrative. Leviticus 18 is the first time that comes up, but we're only in Genesis 4. So uh, we talked about in our doctrine of the canon of Scripture how as history unfolds, God added more books into the Bible. They didn't have the book of Leviticus yet at this moment. So it would have been encouraged actually to, it wouldn't have been called incest, but they would have been, on my view, the only people that existed. Anyway, so you, you get what I'm saying. Cain would have been. Cain was concerned that his other siblings would kill him after he killed their sibling. So anyway, we're coming in for a landing in, 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 shortly here. God created the world without sin and without death. This is really good news because we're going to be recreated into the same world. But God created, not the same world, into a similar reality, an even better world where there won't be snakes slithering around tempting us. That's not going to happen in New Jerusalem. Anyway, okay, God created the world without sin and without death. Remember, God's creation was very good. It was very good. Death was not a part of God's original creation. Genesis 2.17, God warns Adam about this. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So that's going to be a punishment for disobedience is what death is. But death didn't exist until Adam sinned. In fact, sin and death came into the world. They were not there originally. They were brought in by Adam. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Now, I know that Alex is already thinking, are you gonna talk about original sin and how Adam's sin is transferred to us? We will, but we won't do that today because we're talking about creation. But when we talk about sin, we're gonna do that. I know that you're gonna ask that because we've had a conversation about that before. But anyway, the point that I want to make here is sin and death came into the world through Adam, not through God's original creation. Romans 5.12 Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death came into the world through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Similar arguments made in 1 Corinthians 15. For as by a man came death, by A man has come also the resurrection of the dead That's really good news about Jesus recreating the world that Adam ruined <laughs> but as by a man came death that's Adam by the man came death. Also worth noting is that the first death recorded in the Bible actually occurs right after Adam and Eve sin right after the fall. Genesis 3:21. This is a little subtle, but I th- I think it's worth noting here. Genesis 3:21 says this, after they sinned, they were they were naked and ashamed. God's like, "Who told you you were naked?" How does God cover their shame? The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So where did those skins come from? I think that's the first record of death in the Bible is that God kills an animal to make skins for them to cover their shame. I think like it's some sort of funny story like God's like looking at the man and saying, Wow! Okay. So that's, that's what the dark imagery is. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alex, for your valuable contribution. That's really nice. That's, so there's Bambi, everybody. Genesis 321. She's skinned by God himself. Okay. No, we're, we're coming back on track. But so, the, a skin is from a dead animal, right? So, I think what we have here is the first indication of death comes post-Adam's sin. Something worth noting as far as how we interact with evolution. Evolution requires death, right? As, Species die, the ones that have the more favorable traits make it through, etc. But if there's no death, I don't think theistic evolution is possible. Now, Grudem and others, Grudem really has written like three books, I think, about arguing against evolution. Grudem does not like evolution, but Grudem is open, along with others. The reason I'm mentioning Grudem, by the way, is because I had I recommended a book to people. It's a systematic theology book. I can show you about it. Um, And so his name is Wayne Grudem. And so Wayne Grudem says death for humans happened through Adam, but Grudem is not convinced that death for animals happened through Adam. He thinks it's possible that animals might have died before Adam sinned. I don't happen to hold that view. I take these passages in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 that I just read to you, I take those to mean that death in general came into the world. It doesn't say death for humans came into the way It's just sin and death, death through sin, just death came into the world. So I'm inclined to say death was introduced via Adam. Um, I also, so a few reasons why I, I, I think that one of them, it just, I, I do see the connection between Adam sinning and then an animal dying afterward. Also, I don't think that death would be would constitute very good. I think a world free of death is important to hold if we're going to say that God created it very good and that God recreates it because there's not going to be death in heaven. So I I do th- anyway. So I think th- those are things to say. But also, Adam was responsible for the whole of the created world, not just for humanity. Adam was responsible for all of the created world, not just humanity, Genesis 1.28. God says, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So pre-sin, Adam is responsible for the garden. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam's responsible for the garden pre-fall. Post sin, all that Adam stewards, all that Adam's responsible for, is harmed by his sin. Genesis 3 cursed is the ground because of you. He was responsible for caring for the ground, and because he sinned, the ground which he was responsible for was harmed. So that's a misuse of authority. Jesus uses authority for our good, comes down, dies for us to recreate us. And anyway, so that's why, those are some reasons I think. Death, in general, was introduced for the first time when Adam sinned. Um, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to be on time, guys. This is really cool. This is, this is seldom. <laughs> okay, anyway. God created the world, also, this is related, God created the world without pain and without suffering. Not just without sin and without death, but without pain and without suffering. It was only post-sin that pain and suffering came. Again, this is really good news, because when God recreates the world, We know that verse in Revelation, you'll wipe away every tear, there will be no tears, there will be no pain, there will be no suffering. That's good news, but a a world that's very good, I think, doesn't include pain and suffering. But also, we see pain and suffering introduced because of uh, Adam's sin. Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, this is after he sinned, God is cursing him, because you have listened to the voice of your Eve and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded, don't eat it. Because of that, cursed Is the ground because of you in pain you'll eat of it thorns and thistles will come by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you die that's the curse so that's pain and that suffering totally described i mean when we work we sweat it's exhausting it's frustrating it's like oh man i don't like this i don't think that's how work was before the fall happened before sin happened adam i think was going to joyfully work the ground pain-free work the ground and death-free work the ground but then when he sinned god cursed him, that introduced Adam's sin introduced pain and suffering which was previously not there Romans 8 says something similar I think about how creation was subjected to suffering Romans 8 um, verse 19 says this for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly But because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It was not created in bondage. Creation was not created in bondage with thorns and thistles and sweat and pain. It was put in bondage after it was created by Adam. And this is the good news we talked about. God will one day recreate the world where we have no pain, no suffering, no death, and no sin. Praise God! In the meanwhile, here we are. But God didn't make it in the meanwhile this way. Adam made it in the meanwhile this way. Okay. We have seven minutes left. That's the perfect amount of time to talk about seven days. (sighs) Perfect. Okay. So a point that I just want to make broadly first is that the different creation events, as far as I can read them, we read them earlier this morning, the different creation events seem to occur at distinct moments, not gradually and continuously. They're days apart. That brings us into the question, and this is the, mo- the one that we're going to zoom in on, how long is a day? How long is a day? And this is a, a legitimate question. I'm not, not going to give a cheeky answer to this because this, I think there are legitimate reasons, textually even, to, to ask that question. How long is a day in Genesis 1? So in general there are three dominant views that I think are worth us exploring now. The first one, I'm going to pretty quickly throw away, but we're, the other two I won't. The alleg- the purely allegory view. It's pure allegory. The whole story is just a, an allegory designed essentially to teach us God made everything. But as far as the details, nothing is exact. Nothing can be taken like technically or nuanced. It's just the, the point of Genesis 1 is just God made it. I think that is a denial of any historical details, and I, I think that's a fairly groundless view, so I'm, I'm really not going to double click on that. I don't think we have a good reason to interpret it that way. That sounds extreme to me. But the second and third options I think are worth us looking. The day-age view, you might have heard this before, which which holds that a day, like the first day, second day, they're a, a long duration of time, perhaps a, a vague long duration of time. Or the literal view. the, the day roughly 24 hours view so let's look at these in turn i think this is relevant the day age view is a view i don't personally hold but i i do have respect for this view and i'll I'll tell you why day the word day in the old testament can refer to a more broad span of time in some cases proverbs 25 is an example like the cold of the snow in the day of harvest is a faithful messenger (coughs) excuse me In this day, I will surely die. (laughs) Okay, Lord, let it not be. Okay, like the cold of the snow in the day of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. In the day of harvest, that's not a necessarily a literal day. In fact, harvest is a season, isn't it? So day can mean a season of time. Um, And so that's one reason to, to think it's at least possible. And then the reason to proactively believe it, I think the best reason that someone would believe it, even though I don't believe it, would be Genesis 2:4. I think this is the best basis for a day-age view that there exists. Genesis 2-4 reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In the day, I thought it was seven days. So this day in Genesis 2-4 covers seven days. Surely the day in Genesis 2:4, they would say, isn't a 24-hour period. It's 24 times 7. Wait. So that, I think that's a respectable uh, argument. My personal take, and I'll explain why in a moment, because I think there's some more compelling reasons to believe the more literal view, but I take Genesis 2-4 to be a summary statement to basically say, in the day God completed the earth and the heavens, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I, I understand Genesis 1-1. We haven't gotten here yet, actually, but we will in two minutes. I I think Genesis 1-1 is the first creation event. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because verse 2, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. Where did the waters come from? We haven't had a day yet where the water got made. I think the water got made, Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he formed them and shape them and all that in Genesis 2 and following. So anyway, uh, on my reading, I think Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-4 are bookends. God created, God created. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. God created the gen- the heavens and the earth, Genesis 2-4. I take Genesis 2-4 to be a completion statement. So that's how I read it. Whether you're convinced by that or not, that's for you to decide. But here's a few reasons why I'm inclined to go toward the literal view. Evening and morning. We talked about. We mentioned this before when we were talking about the Sabbath day. Evening and morning is one literal Jewish day. Leviticus 23 says that you should observe your Sabbath uh, beginning at evening. Leviticus 23:32. Beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. So the Sabbath day begins in the evening and then ends the following evening because for on the Jewish understanding of a day. The day begins at night. So, I don't I I do see that as a literal day. The evening begins the day, and the morning going into the afternoon ends the day when the next evening comes. Also, and this is really I think this is a this to me is a fairly compelling reason to believe the literal view. God equates in Exodus chapter 20, God equates his work week to our seven day work week. Exodus 20 verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, your sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." If my week is 7 days, I'm inclined to think so was God's because he seems to equate them in Exodus chapter 20. We can talk more about all of this in a moment, in the interest of time, I'm going to try to punch out these last two points. Can we know if we're going to if we're going to read the Bible this way Alden, are you saying we can know precisely how old the human race is from the bible genealogies some people go so far as to think that there have been a number of christians who have tried calculating the exact age of the human race to a year because we have genealogies son of son of son of and if that calculate you pretty much average out their ages to roughly whatever they were we can have an idea of how old they were i don't think that's i don't i don't think that's legitimate uh, history what people are doing there There is a real possibility that the genealogies in the Bible have gaps. We know this if you compare the Matthew 1 genealogy to the corresponding 1st Chronicles 3 genealogy. There's like three different people that Matthew skips over. Son of, son of, but you zoom into that son of, son of, and there's three sons of generation. Now, that doesn't mean it's false because the word son can mean descendant of the, the Hebrew word for son can mean descendant it usually means son but it can mean descendant there are cases where it can the purpose of genealogies we mentioned this earlier it's fine I'm using genealogies for an argument on one side but against another so maybe I'm just inconsistent but here we are you're getting me so this is where I am the purpose of a genealogy was to connect lineage to the God because of God's promises. It wasn't to say, this person's definitely the parent of this person, the parents of this. They didn't care whose dad they were. What they cared is that they were connected to the promises of God. So it wasn't necessarily that they were a direct, this is my direct father. It was, this is my lineage. That was really the purpose of a genealogy. That's why we see some gaps, and it didn't really matter to them because they knew what they were talking about themselves. So, anyway, okay. So, in conclusion, I don't think we can know with precision the age of the human race from the genealogies. I I think that's silly. A last question to ask, and this is my last point. If, If the days are literal, do we know how old the earth is? There are people who believe in an old earth on scientific grounds, right? Do we know how old the earth is? Does the Bible tell us that the earth is young, for example? As I mentioned, I think Genesis 1-1 is, a, is the first creation event. The reason I lean so heavily toward Genesis 1-1 being the first creation event is because otherwise where did the water come from? I think God created the water because God created all things. Water a thing. God created water. When did he do that? I think he did that before the first day. So that's why I think that the first creation event is actually not within the time span of those days beginning. And so in that case, if I'm right about that, then the world may be much older than the human race even if you hold to literal 24 hour increments of day because the earth may have existed well before the first day. It just was formed later on. So I want to suggest that Christians should not argue for a specific age of the earth. There's a lot more scientific questions you can have about that that are relevant but that's what I think the Bible says about those things and I, I see it as I I think it's a little problematic when Christians will try to argue that the earth is a certain specific age with confidence, but I just don't think the Bible tells us that information.